This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm an astronomer, obviously, and, and I am also a believer in God. Now, a century ago, that would not necessarily have raised many eyebrows. Uh, even if I were to go on to testify that I'm an astronomer who believes in the Trinity, uh, in the resurrection, in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. But it raises eyebrows today at most universities in the United States. And yet, 100 years ago, when it didn't raise eyebrows, science was just as well-practiced, just as fruitful in its discoveries uh, as it is today. So what has changed to make my declaration so controversial? Why is there such a strong narrative in the U.S. today that faith and science conflict. It's a very long and complex story, and I'm not a historian, so I'm not qualified to explain it. So what I'm going to do is, uh, as Father asked me to do, give uh, an autobiography as an example of a scientist uh, who not only is a practicing Catholic, but actually converted to Catholicism in the middle of his life. I'll tell you that story. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the conflict uh, hypothesis, uh, science and faith and perpetual conflict with each other. And then for the younger people in the audience, uh, although I have to say, having talked to a number of you over the last day, I'm not sure you need any of this advice. Uh, it's, I'm going to try to give you some advice on, on being more out there about your faith and uh, trying to help push back against what uh, is a very troubling trend. So I'll begin. Um, I'm not a cradle Catholic. Uh, but I am a cradle astronomer. From, from my earliest childhood, I was fascinated by the heavens. I remember reading the Golden Book of Astronomy, uh, which is no longer in existence. Uh, I was leaping through my dad's much more voluminous and difficult LaRousse Encyclopedia of Astronomy, which I still have. But I grew up in New York City and Manhattan, so there were no stars to see in the sky. So here, as you can see, the Hayden Planetarium in its original form before it was transformed to the Rose Center. That was my magic carpet to the heavens. We lived about seven blocks away, New York blocks, which would be a little bit, um, about half a mile, three quarters of a mile. So that was where the cosmos could be displayed in all its glory, on the inside of a dome ceiling with this remarkable machine. This isn't quite the generation that was there when I was a kid, but it's close to it and very different from the way they look now. This is the Zeiss star projector, uh, which would rise silently from a pit in the middle of the room. It was like some sort of two-headed demiurge that was about to create the heavens for the paying faithful, and some were praying faithful, but it really did kind of looked like a temple, and, and the priest was the astronomer at the control panels in the back uh, and operating and narrating the show. Of course, nowadays it's all pre-recorded, so you miss all that stuff. But um, it was really enchanting for me, and what was also enchanting was the space program. I grew up in the 1960s. I was born in 1959, and uh, that program, the space program, was moving so fast in the 1960s that I thought when I was an adult, I'd be working uh, at a lunar base on the moon somewhere, or maybe going to Mars. Uh, and so uh, I was really into Apollo. Um, I ordered these NASA guidebooks. This is one example on the moon with Apollo 16. 
Uh, the photo didn't come with that. It was this is a photo from that mission. But these were geology guidebooks, and they had these very long and detailed lists of what each of the geology stops were. By the time of the last three Apollo missions, the lunar module carried a, a rover that the astronauts drove around in. And so they would go to all these geologic sites and and I would follow along. Now, by this point, the networks had given up on the Apollo moon missions. They were bored. The American people were bored. But we had something called teleprompter cable TV in New York City, which was early cable TV. And they had nothing to broadcast. The technology was there, but, you know, there were no shows. There was no CNN. And so they would just broadcast the moonwalks, you know, all 21 hours of them. And I would sit there, uh, I think, one of the, you know, sometimes at three in the morning, and I would follow along. Uh, and that all made a very big impression upon me. So while astronomy and space exploration were my passion, uh, my culture was Judaism. My father's uh, family, his father, emigrated as a child from, uh, from what's now more or less Belarus. Uh, it was uh, sort of Poland and, and Belarus and Russia back and forth. Uh, his family was conservative Jews who emigrated to this uh, country at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, they founded uh, some men's clothing stores. My mother came from Austrian and German stock. Uh, she was a third generation New Yorker, however, and she was also a Rockette. She was a member of the uh, Rockette Precision Dance Troupe at Radio City Music Hall before she was married, before I was born. That's a publicity still of her. Uh, and her side of the family came from a very liberal Jewish tradition. And in fact, her father, my maternal grandfather, who died a year before I was born, uh, held the view, so my mother tells me, that religion was the root of all of humankind's ills. So you had the conservative Jews on one side, and you had the sort of Jewish agnostic on the other side. And it was a very interesting mix. And then you throw into that Radio City Music Hall, with the famous Christmas show. And so, you know, we celebrated Christmas along with Hanukkah, as many American Jews did at that time and still do today. And also, as was common among mid-20th century Jewish families, our family Bible was the King James Bible, uh, which, uh, you know, containing the Old and New Testament and the Apocrypha and the authorized King James Version. But I still have this book, and it was beautiful. Uh, and I will talk a little bit about it in a few minutes, but uh, it made a very big impression on me. But my father was an alcoholic uh, and a pill abuser. Uh, he lost his business. It went bankrupt a few months before it would have been bought out by uh, the executors of the Hotel Astor, which also went bankrupt, but after he did. So really bad luck. Um, my mother had to go back to work periodically as I was growing up. And so I had lots of time alone at home. My sister was doing her own thing. And I would spend hours browsing uh, my father's book collection and reading that King James Bible. So I did have some religious training. Uh, we did for a little while until financial problems made it impossible. We belonged to Central Synagogue in Manhattan. It's this beautiful Moorish architectural building, um, nearly burned down about six years ago and was rescued in the same way that Notre Dame Cathedral was at, right after the roof collapsed. But um, my education there helped me to navigate the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. The New Testament, though, was what I kept flipping to in that King James Bible. 
there were beautiful reproductions of classic paintings, uh, and just what was in there seemed very alluring to me and, um, and very attractive. So they were dark times. My father's condition uh, made it impossible for him to hold down a job. He had a very unpredictable mental state. There was an anxious gloom over everything. Uh, my mother divorced him uh, in 1973. He died uh, about a year later uh, after living in a local YMCA. Uh, I was about 14 years old. And um, right around that time, uh, I had a dream which was completely unexpected. And in that dream was Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to go through the details of it, but it was very, very vivid and very real. And I could easily have become a Christian at the age of 14 uh, if I had been more proactive about it. But it would be 33 years later before that actually happened. I guess I was just too thick-headed to respond to God's call, which is a pretty amazing thing. But but there you have it. So um, my mother did not discourage me, by the way. She became um, sort of a nominal Protestant Christian uh, for a, a long time until a few years before her death. So meanwhile, my passion in astronomy was being fueled by um, a book that this astronomer wrote in 1974 called The Cosmic Connection and Extraterrestrial Perspective. It was a remarkable book that laid out this vision of humankind as destined to explore the stars. And I was just thrilled by the book. I didn't know who Sagan was. I'd read about it in an astronomy magazine. But I waxed so enthusiastically around our apartment that my mother finally said, why don't you write to Sagan? And after resisting that, too, I guess I was a very resistant person, uh, I finally wrote back. Uh, I finally wrote to him, and he wrote back. And so you can't actually you know, read the text of the letter, but this is his letter to me in, uh, in 1974. It's 1974, yep, April. And uh, in it, he explained how to become an astronomer. And this was really seminal because I loved astronomy, but as a junior high school, middle school kid, I didn't know how to become a scientist. And he just laid out, you know, that I should study physics and chemistry and when I get to college, it wasn't important that there be an astronomy major, that physics was, you know, just fine. Uh, and this, so this was, was really pivotal to me. It made me feel that I could, in fact, become an astronomer. But by the early 1970s, support for science and space exploration in the United States had tanked. And if you look at a plot in the, shown in the upper left here of NASA funding, as a percentage of federal funding, that giant peak in the late 60s is the Apollo program. And then it takes a nosedive. And so did a lot of other areas of physical science research. So um, that combined with some residual guilt about my father's illness made me decide in that same year, 74, that instead I would abandon astronomy and become a medical doctor. And I took this really seriously. I read you know, books about amazing discoveries in medicine. Uh, I volunteered at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City in the lower left, working for a cancer doctor, Dr. Janet Kuttner, who must now be long dead. Um, she had me making graphs and sending out reprint requests. Who knows what a reprint request is? You do, and you do. Yeah, so you couldn't just grab articles off the web at that time, right? There was no web. You had to fill out this little postcard 
It said, Dear Dr. Smith, I would like a reprint of your recent paper in whatever, uh, volume number and so forth, would you please send it to me? And I was filling those out, and she was just a prolific reader, so I was filling a lot of these. Uh, she wanted all sorts of reprints. All right, so I was going to be a doctor, but that didn't last long. Uh, my pediatrician, who was an alum of Cornell, Dr. George Genandi, sent me this note in the lower right here, which um, invited me to a talk downtown in New York City by the famous Cornell astronomer, another famous Cornell astronomer, because Carl Sagan was at Cornell, uh, on the latest discoveries by the largest radio telescope in the world at the time, Arecibo, shown there in the upper right, which unfortunately suffered a catastrophic structural collapse this last year and, and is no more and will not get rebuilt. Um, the Chinese have an even bigger and better one that looks very much like it. Um, so I was enthralled and I was also troubled because I realized that in my heart, I didn't want to be a medical doctor. I wanted to be an astronomer. And so by the time I enrolled in 1976 at the University of Rochester. I was majoring in physics and astronomy. And by the way, um, I actually wanted to go to Cornell. Um, I applied, I was admitted, and we just couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford the tuition, even though we were a, I was a resident of New York, New York State. It was too expensive. But I had wonderful professors at the University of Rochester. Uh, Hugh Van Horn, shown here in the lower left, was my senior thesis advisor. Uh, and he was a great teacher and very inspiring. My mother had remarried by that time. Uh, Norman Jacobs in the upper left was an industrial chemist. And uh, you know, we talked a lot about science in my last year of high school and, and when I was in college. And he was very, very influential as well. He's still alive. He's, he's almost 91, 90 and a half. Uh, and so I had a lot of mentors and a lot of support in that regard. And it was during my time at University of Rochester that the Voyager spacecraft encountered Jupiter. And so the wonderful image you see here, this is the cover of Sky and Telescope magazine from March of 1979. And uh, this is not the one I originally owned, but one of my graduate students found this on eBay and gave it to me because I told him the story that was, I thought, really cool. Uh, so anyway, I you know picked this up at the campus uh, post office and went to my stellar atmospheres class and unwrapped the wrapper and there's this picture. It's a far encounter image of Jupiter from Voyager One and I decided at that point that the kind of astronomer I wanted to be was a planetary astronomer. I wanted to do planetary science, planetary exploration. I wanted to uh, participate in uh, the robotic exploration of the planets. And so um, my senior thesis advisor, Hugh Van Horn, who studied white dwarfs, which are um, compact degenerate stars, was very understanding about this. And he introduced me during my senior year, I think by primitive email by that point, um, to David Stevenson, who uh, had just moved to the Division of Geological and Planetary Sciences at Caltech. Uh, there's a picture of him from roughly that time. Uh, and uh, I applied to Caltech and I got in. Uh, I enrolled there. It was 1980 uh, as a PhD student. I was Dave Stevenson's first PhD student. Dave turned out to be a wonderful advisor, and I spent an intense but very fruitful four years in Pasadena doing work on planetary ices and surfaces. This is a paper from Science, a proposal that we had for a, 
uh, an ethane and methane ocean on Saturn's moon Titan. And um, I made lots of connections across town in Pasadena to uh, scientists at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where a lot of the planetary exploration is still done today, and at that time almost exclusively was done there. Um, and I still have a visiting position there to this day. So I, I finished my PhD pretty fast. I finished it in 1984, although it was dated 1985. And then I was offered a postdoc position at the University of Arizona, where there's a separate department of planetary science. It's very unusual. And then I was offered a faculty position there uh, two years later. And I found my offer letter. And uh, the salary actually is not too bad. Um, this was 1986. It was an academic year salary of $29,000, which if you inflate it to today's dollars is about $75,000, which you know, not too bad for an assistant professor. But the thing I would like you to take note of is my startup package. My startup package was $1,000 for telephone and copying, $2,000 for travel, and a personal computer, an IBM PC AT. Now, as department chair, I can tell you that I have to wrestle with faculty hires who want millions of dollars in startup, and they usually get it. Um, but I started my career with an IBM PC AT and a thousand bucks for telephone charges, and it worked out okay. So, you know, you don't have to have a million dollar startup package to succeed in science, even though people seem to believe that. So um, in large part, my success has been because of my involvement in space science missions over the last 30 years. Uh, Voyager at Neptune, Cassini-Saturn, Juno at Jupiter, James Webb Space Telescope, Europa Clipper, and other missions. And I got involved because my advisor, David Stevenson, when I was a graduate student, uh, was invited to give a talk to an international panel of scientists planning the next decade of of outer solar system missions after the Voyager flybys. And instead of going to give that talk, he said to them, why don't you have my graduate student, Jonathan Lenin, give the talk, because he's been working on, on Saturn. And um, that got me plugged in. And so there's a lesson for any advisors who are out there. Uh, sometimes it really gives your students a boost if they give the talk instead of you giving the talk, and that really helped. One of those visiting scientists, Dr. Angeletta Corradini in the lower left, who's passed away now, but became a very uh, good colleague and friend and helped my career uh, on the international level, invited me to attend a conference in Italy that was part of the planning for this Cassini mission to Saturn that I became involved in for 30 years. Charles Alachi in the upper right, uh, who was a radar scientist at JPL, got me involved in thinking about how to do radar at Titan, and um, that also helped me. So these generous invitations, together with others from uh, my postdoc advisor, Don Hunton, who was also involved with NASA headquarters people, that really catalyzed my involvement. So there were a lot of generous scientists who helped me out and you know, without that, I think um, I would just really not have been involved in these things. This is um, a thank, a congratulations note uh, when I was selected for this Cassini-Huygens mission, which sent a spacecraft to Saturn and landed a probe on Titan. Um, you'll notice here at the bottom, the email protocol at the time uh, was a node, JPLGP, with 
a double colon and then the name of the person. And that was that was email at the time. So anyway, this was this all really helped out a lot. I got involved in the Voyager Neptune mission as well uh, in 1989, thanks to colleagues as well at uh, at Arizona. And so that really helped me get on my way. Okay, so um, here's a little bit of science. So Voyager um, flew through the Saturn system, discovered that this little moon of Saturn, Enceladus, was, was very bright and had no craters on parts of it. And that was kind of strange. And um, then Cassini came along and discovered that at the south pole of this little moon, about uh, 300 miles across, 500 kilometers across, uh, were these fractures that you see in the upper left that extend for hundreds of kilometers. And looking back at the sun through the south polar region of Enceladus, that upper middle picture, you see this cloud of material, which is a plume of ice particles and dust particles, and they were also accompanied by gas. When Cassini got closer, it saw that these were resolved into about 100 individual jets of material pouring out of the uh, interior, and that those longer fractures were actually, as you see in the lower right here, a very complex series of crisscrossing fractures out of which this vapor and ice and dust are pouring out. So Cassini fortuitously carried instruments called mass spectrometers, which directly sample uh, ions of molecules and atoms. And it turned out it was possible to safely fly Cassini through this plume of material. And so it was able to directly analyze that material in 12 of these fly-throughs. And uh, it's got salty water. It was ice by the time it got to the spacecraft, but there's so much salt in it that it had to have started out as liquid water. Carbon-bearing molecules, organic molecules, uh, nitrogen-bearing molecules, and, um, and little particles of silicon dioxide, SiO2, a billionth of a meter and uniform in size, which points to the liquid water in the inside of this icy body interacting chemically with a rocky core. And Cassini showed that the density of this moon is large enough that there must be a lot of rock. And so the silicon dioxide is being leached out of the core, probably even reacting rock like phosphorite reacting with the hot water to make the SiO2. And so that says that at the base of this um, liquid water layer, there is what is called by terrestrial uh, oceanographers or geochemists, a hydrothermal system, which is where primitive forms of life exist on the, on the earth today. May not be where life began on the earth, but, but uh, certainly a place where very primitive microbes using simple metabolisms do exist. And there were other things that Cassini did that demonstrated that this ocean is actually global. Uh, the, the whole surface is capped by this ice crust, then you have the ocean, and then underneath is the silicon. So, is there life here? No one knows, but it's certainly one of the best places to go to look for life, microbial life. And I've been involved in several mission concepts still ongoing to try to get a spacecraft back to Enceladus with instruments that would allow for the detection of life just by sampling the material that's coming out of the, the plume of, uh, of gas and dust and ice. This, I mean, I love doing this stuff and it's my passion. 
But it was soon after arriving in Tucson that um, another passion came along, and that was my wonderful wife-to-be, Cynthia Ewing. Uh, we got married in 1986. Uh, there she is in the wedding dress. My sister is on the other side of me, and there's my stepfather. Uh, we began, Cynthia and I, uh, attending a very non-traditional Methodist church led by a brilliant pastor, David Wilkinson. I had not converted to Christianity. I had not been baptized. I was still nominally Jewish. Um, but uh, Wilkinson's sermons were really brilliant, consistently brilliant. Um, they made a lot of sense to me. They brought home the Christian message of hope and love. He was well-read in Augustine, uh, in some of the other church fathers, uh, in uh, Tiara de Chardin, who he really loved. And once in a while, he'd get into a Franciscan outfit and pull out his guitar and play Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. So he did that at least once. But he was a serious scholar, and, you know, the combination of those things made me really begin to think. It made a huge impression on me about, you know, where, where really was my heart with respect to God? And then being in Europe on sabbatical in the summers, visiting the great Catholic churches, seeing the artwork, the long history there, that made a huge impression on me as well. What also made a big impression on me were the uh, Jesuit brothers and fathers, the friars of the Vatican Astronomy Group, which had their headquarters both in Castel Gandolfo, outside of Rome, and at the University of Arizona, where I was teaching. This is Guy Consolmagno, well before he became director of the observatory, Jesuit brother, running the meteorite lab there. I knew Guy before he became a Jesuit before he thought of becoming a Jesuit. But in Arizona, I got to meet the other Jesuit um, priests and brothers, and um, I began to work with them. I helped to lead one of their famous summer schools in Castel Gandolfo, and they demonstrated this, this, it was a vivid demonstration of their harmonious lives of faith and science, and that made a huge impression on me. Now, the Dominicans have a harmonious life of faith and science, too, but I didn't know any Dominicans at the time, so you you go with the order that's there, right? So, and the Jesuits were there, so, um, although the Dominicans are running the Newman Center, which we'll get to in a moment. So, um, so, I mean, all of this ate away at me, and finally, in 2006, um, At the age of 47, sitting in my living room in Arizona one morning after we came back from the sabbatical in Italy, I realized that um, it was time for me to stop putting this off and to actually do something proactive uh, and stop running away from the one who had been calling me for 33 years um, and um, to accept Christ and um, not only as Christian, but as a Catholic Christian. Um, now, my wife's uh, parents were um, uh, fundamentalist Christians, uh, Church of Christ, Independent Church of Christ. Uh, my mother-in-law wasn't so thrilled I was going to become a Catholic, but, but they got it. It was okay. You know, so so I, I called my friend, our son's pediatrician, uh, Bill Madden, who is Catholic, and I asked him, Bill, what would you think? Would you think I was crazy if I said I wanted to become a Catholic? And he didn't miss a beat. He, he um, introduced me to... Uh, the priests at the Newman Center, the Dominican priests at the Newman Center. Um, he offered himself as my RCIA sponsor, and nine months later, on Holy Saturday of 2007, I was baptized and confirmed into the church at the Newman Center, uh, and I had finally stopped running. 
So um, I would only spend another uh, three years at Arizona. I arranged a leave of absence back to Rome because we loved it there. And um, during that time, um, unbeknownst to me, I taught at the University of Rome, too. Uh, a, a colleague of mine at Cornell, Jim Bell, uh, decided to leave Cornell, and he went to Arizona State, uh, the Sun Devils. And so um, a mutual friend of ours who is still at Cornell, Steve Squires, called me up and said, um, would you consider coming to Cornell? Because we have a mid-career vacancy, and we want you to come. And it was very attractive. It was the former home of Carl Sagan and Frank Drake, the two astronomers who had really influenced my career. Um, when I was young, uh, it was um, uh, where my senior thesis advisor, Hugh Van Horn, got his PhD in the 1960s, and where my PhD advisor, David Stevenson, got his PhD in the 1970s. Uh, it was the place I couldn't afford to attend as an undergraduate, and uh, which I had passed over for grad school. And so it just seemed like the right place for the next phase of my life. And so, um, and my wife loved. Ithaca. Um, we went there and visited. And so that's what happened. I became a professor at Cornell. Um, I came to direct uh, the Cornell Center for Astrophysics and Planetary Science, which is a research center. And then I became um, department chair. And so in two weeks, I will celebrate 10 years at Cornell. All right. So that's the end of my autobiography. Um, but I want to now talk uh, with the time that I have left and don't worry, um, the whiskey uh, is all better as it ages, I think. <laughs> a little bit more um, there, um, and then it'll be ready to go. So I want to talk about the question of the conflict between science and faith. This is a major theme in our culture today, um, and it's one um, that uh, is uh, dis described in a rich tre treasure trove of articles on the web and blogs and and books and so on as, as uh, the conflict is already won. It's over, right? I mean, science is won. That's what you read. But actually, this, this idea is, is not all that old in its current form. It doesn't go back centuries. It goes back 150 years. And it goes back really to two books. One written by uh, uh, William Draper, uh, John William Draper, a scientist, who wrote A History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science in 1874. And then in 1896, the founding president of Cornell University, Andrew Dixon White, wrote a similar book entitled The History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom. Both these books are pretty much forgotten now, except by science historians. But they were very, very influential at the time. They sort of set the stage for the Dawkins and the Harrises of our time. Um, they were a source of many of the tropes about religious oppression of science, including the Galileo affair. So one example is from uh, Andrew Dixon White's book, President Cornell. So I quote, the whole struggle to crush Galileo and to save him would be amusing were it not so fraught with evil. There were intrigues and counter-intrigues, plots and counterplots, lying and spying, and in the thickest of the seething, squabbling, screaming mass of priests, bishops, archbishops, and cardinals. Well, you get the story. This is supposed to be serious history, and, you know, that's how it was pitched. I mean, he was a historian. Um, in fact, the chemist and historian Lawrence Principe, um, who gave a talk last week at the Society of Catholic Sinus Conference, and 
won our St. Albert the Great Award, said of both of these works, quote, historical facts are confected, causes and chronologies twisted to the author's purpose. We find interpretations made merely by declaration. We find quotations violently taken out of context. And instances, quite a few of them, where Draper claims a historical writer said something that was in fact 180 degrees around from what he actually claimed. Let's start with a simple and notorious example. The idea that before Columbus, people thought that the world was flat. Well, in fact, it's Draper and White specifically, both of them, who bear most of the blame for popularizing this baseless view to the extent that nowadays, 80% of school teachers still foist this idea upon poor, innocent school children. The fact is that, of course, the sphericity of the earth was well established by the 5th century BC by the Greeks, and a good measure of its circumference made by the 3rd century BC. And these facts were never forgotten in learned Western culture. And if you go to the first article in the Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas talks about, you know, physicists and astronomers measuring the sphericity of the Earth in different ways, the physicists by experiment and the astronomers by math. So, um, and so, you know, all of, I mean, this was all true. So, um, and yet, the, the ironic thing is, so that's the end of the Principe quote, and yet White pronounced himself not an enemy of Christendom, but one who desired to save it. Indeed, he wrote, quote, this is Andrew Dixon White, my most cherished friendships were among deeply religious men and women. His anti-religious sentiment simmers in the institutional subconscious at Cornell and most other secular universities today. And in fact, being at Cornell, White is never very far from me. His Victorian Gothic house is a stone's throw away from my astronomy building. And the, um, the, the horse stables that went with it are now the Graduate Student Center and a campus cafeteria. And so I have the privilege, uh, once they reopen after COVID, of eating a sandwich where the horses belonging to the author of the Warfare of Science with Theology once munched their hay. Really quite not. So let me talk a little bit about the Society of Catholic Scientists, because the question is, how do you push back against this? And, you know, as individuals, it's hard. So Stephen Barr, a friend and colleague from the University of Delaware, a physicist who's now retired from science, had the brilliant idea, um, which uh, we had talked about uh, in sort of the 2014-2015 period, of founding um, an organization that would essentially witness to the harmony of science and faith. It would be a Catholic organization for Catholic scientists. Um, and so led by Stephen Barr, a group uh, including Father Nicanor Ostriaco, who's a Dominican biologist, uh, founded this society. And uh, our board today includes uh, Maureen Kondik, who's here, who's joined us, and uh, is we're very, very, very fortunate to have her. So, um, its purpose is to foster fellowship among Catholic scientists and witness to the harmony of faith and reason. In five short years, uh, the society has grown to over 1,500 members. We hold annual meetings. We organize gold masses. Uh, we're now starting to establish regional chapters. So uh, if there's anyone here who uh, is not a member and you're a Catholic, practicing Catholic, and a scientist or a graduate student or undergraduate, um, you can join and if you're a friendly theologian or historian, you can be a scholar associated. Um, so 
please join. Um, the website is here, just Google on Society of Catholic Scientists. We have biographies of famous scientists who are Catholics. We have a collection of answers to common misunderstandings about what the Catholic faith, faith teaches about science. And we will be doing more programs. Okay, so now the personal thing, what can you do? Um, well, it's not until we really get into our 50s, I would say, um, that we kind of realize that time is running short. And in fact, the social scientist uh, Ronald Dworkin wrote in the journal First Things that it isn't until we get into our 50s that we come to realize that the spiritual food that science offers would not suit even a canary. That's his quote. Um, unfortunately, most young people have left science, have left religion. Most young people have left religion, their religion, by that time, and it's sort of too late. Um, it's fair to say that droves of young people have left the Catholic Church. Um, the growing mass of the unaffiliated uh, is, if anything, accelerating. Most of these people will never come back. And it seems to be a trend that doesn't really trouble the church leadership, um, maybe because they see growing numbers of Catholics in other continents around the world, in Africa, South America, and Asia. But, you know, it ought to trouble them, and it troubles me, because um, could we really afford to have the most technologically and scientifically advanced society on Earth become its most atheistic? What is that going to look like? We kind of have a picture of what that looked like from the 1917 to 1980-whatever. Um, and it wasn't a really pretty picture, I think. Um, and, you know, do we want to have that kind of picture again? What kind of dystopian future does that really bode for us as human beings and also as a society? And so we have to repair the rift. Um, I think that the Thomistic Institute uh, has been remarkably effective in introducing students who may have walked away from Catholicism or never encountered Catholicism. Um, to introduce them to Catholic culture through discussion groups, book clubs. The Thomistic Institute has been very, very effective in um, places like Cornell, campuses where religion is relegated to carefully regulated organizations that are sort of pushed off to the edge of campus. And I have to really give my thanks to, um, to Father Dominic Legg and the other uh, people, the other friars and uh, lay people have worked on this because it's it's been remarkable. At our own chapter, um, our board has been really hardworking. Uh, they have organized uh, talks by Thomistic Institute speakers that at times have attracted 90 to 100 students um, and others on weekday evenings during semester, which is a really admirable number for talks on and St. Thomas and, and happiness, which is the one that uh, Father Dominic is giving here. So, you know, those kinds of organizations, starting those chapters at universities where you may be if you don't have one, those kinds of things are very, very effective. And being per personal witnesses, too. So I'm going to close with the question of personal witness. It takes courage to be upfront and to witness to your faith especially in situations where the expectation is that as a scientist, the secular point of view is the only point of view. It's easy to say you're an astronomer or a PhD student studying chemistry or an undergraduate major in biology. In today's culture, people will admire you for that. 
But if you then declare that you're a devout Catholic or Christian or Jew or Muslim or Hindu or whatever, that you believe in God, um, and that you happen to be an astronomer or PhD student in chemistry or whatever, um, that can be a problem for your career. And so prudence and discernment are really important in this. Um, a new acquaintance of mine once opened a conversation with the following. So uh, you're an astronomer and you're a Catholic. Catholic astronomer. How does that work? And my answer was very, very well, thank you. But that's the prevailing view. <laughs> the two don't really mix, right? And the other thing is, you know, I'm tenured. I'm 61 years old. Um, I'm in the period of, of increasing senescence and gentle decline. Um, some of you do research on that. Um, and the majority of my career is behind me. But, you know, you have, for the young people, your education is your lives are ahead of you. And so you're pursuing a career in science, engineering, and philosophy, and witnessing to your faith, and sometimes in some places, can be really detrimental to your professional advancement. So does that mean you ought to keep silent about your faith? And I think the answer, unfortunately, is a difficult one, and the answer is no, you should not keep silent. But you have to kind of sense what you want to say to the people you want to say it to. And a great example, I think, is St. Paul whose message, if you, you know, think about it, is so different to different people. You know, we think about his letters to, you know, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Romans, Hebrew, etc. But my favorite is really his dialogue in the book of Acts at the Areopagus. Uh, his approach was very different there. It was very different in Athens than it was uh, in other places. You know, Paul was speaking in the marketplace, a group of Stoic philosophers, dragged him up to Mars Hill, essentially, um, to sort of interrogate him or have a dialogue. And he said the following in Acts chapter 17. He says, quote, as I walked around looking carefully at your shrines, I even discovered an altar inscribed to an unknown God. What therefore you unknowingly worship, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all that is in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in sanctuaries made by human hands. It is he who gives to everyone life and breath and everything. He fixed the ordered seasons and the boundaries of their regions so that people might seek God, even perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from any one of us. For in him we move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. There's an enormous amount of very deep wisdom in that, the immutability of physical laws, the fact that God is both transcendent and imminent at the same time, um, God's nature as pure act, as, as being itself, existence itself. All of that is in that message. It's revolutionary, and yet it's eminently digestible by um, a natural philosopher, uh, a Stoic philosopher in, in ancient pagan Athens. But it's not the message you give to a synagogue in Corinth, and it wasn't the message you gave there. It was completely different. So, so tuning your message and being informed about what that message is is really important. So if you arm yourself with a real knowledge and understanding of our faith, its richness and its depth, that will enable you to argue effectively for it and to tune your argument to the right people at the right time, whatever level is appropriate for your interlocutors. And most especially in the context of those you might meet in academia, you 
probably want to explain to them why the Catholic faith is rational and coherent, whereas scientism at its root is incoherent. But be sure to get the argument right. And at the same time that you embrace and defend your faith, embrace your science, train with all the dedication and devotion you can muster to be physicists, biologists, chemists, geologists. Strive to be the very best you can be. Discover new things at the frontier of your field. The eminent astronomer, Monsignor Georges Lemaitre, who pioneered much we accept today about the origin of the universe, said, quote, science is beautiful. It deserves to be loved for itself as it is a reflection of God's creative thought, unquote. That foundation of science is based on our Judeo-Christian faith, that the creative principle, the word, made all things in an ordered and rational way. St. Clement wrote to the Corinthians around the end of the first century, quote, the sun and moon and the companies of the stars roll on in harmony according to his command, within their prescribed limits and without any deviation. The unsearchable places of the abysses and the indescribable arrangements of the lower world are restrained by the same laws, the same enactments of the Lord. And that's not 18th century enlightenment, that's second century AD. There will inevitably be times when as a scientist or mathematician, you feel vulnerable because you are also a person of faith. When you feel that you're standing in front of your colleagues like St. Paul standing at the Areopagus in front of that formidable crowd of Stoic philosophers. But remember that you're never alone. It is Jesus himself who reassures his disciples and us at the end of Matthew's gospel that, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. <laughs>